Uh, well, we're here in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, I imagine this may actually be a familiar story for many of us, in one form or another at least, the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, but it's my conviction, and it should be yours too, that by revisiting this story, even though it's familiar, uh, we'll still hear the voice of God speaking to us in his word, and therefore our study will be rewarded. Uh, now, Genesis 4 opens up presuming that we already know what's been going on in Genesis 1 through 3, so I'm glad that you looked at Genesis 3 even briefly uh, last week. Uh, that will help us, because Genesis 4 opens up uh, in the middle of the action, uh, so to speak, with people we're supposed to be familiar with, and in a context that we're supposed to know. So it might help us in our study uh, to get some background, some context. Like, uh, if you've ever seen Star Wars, uh, they have this scroll of information that catches you up on the story, uh, so that, you know, in, in the first Star Wars movie, when the the big galactic empire ship overshadows the small rebel ship. You already know big bad ship has, uh, you know, evil intentions. Small good ship has Princess Leia on it. And uh, she's got the plans for uh, the Death Star. And all this information that we need is contained within that opening crawl of narration, uh, the yellow text over the space uh, as the Star Wars theme in the same manner, our time in Genesis 4 will be greatly helped if we do a recap of Genesis 1 through 3 to make sure we're all on the same page. Think of it like the opening crawl, right? Uh, God had created the world good in Genesis 1, and he created man and woman in his own image to occupy this good world to exercise authority over it, to be fruitful and multiply in it, and to protect and cultivate the goodness of God's world. But Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman, didn't do that. They didn't listen to the voice of the one who had created the world. They chose to define goodness for themselves, and as they did, they discovered not good, but evil. They chose to find life and wisdom outside of God's loving care. And as they did, they found not life and wisdom, but death and foolishness. And they chose to listen to the voice of the serpent, Satan. And in doing so, they rejected God's voice. And on account of this, because of what they did, uh, they couldn't live in the garden that God had prepared for them. So they were cast out. And as they were cast out, as they were sent away, uh, God told them that the world that they were about to go into, outside of the garden, is different than this garden that he had prepared for them. The blessings that God had created for them, like marriage and childbearing and eating all of uh, this food from these trees and plants, uh, all of these blessings were now distorted. A childbearing would be painful. Eating would, requ would require toil and labor. And man and woman would no longer live together in easy harmony. It's all in Genesis 3. And yet, 
God says to the serpent, Satan, who tempted Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3.15, he tells the serpent that one day there would be an offspring, a child from the woman Eve who would crush his head. That that serpent would one day be defeated so that there could still be hope for humanity to live again with God in a good creation. That's all Genesis 3, and that's the scene that leads us into Genesis 4. So the question that should most be on our mind as Adam and Eve leave the garden is, what is this new sin-cursed world going to look like? How bad will it be? It's really bad. But, as this chapter presents us with the reality of this sin-cursed world, it isn't devoid of hope. Just as God promised the defeat of the serpent in Genesis 3, so also when we read Genesis 4, we see hope like a far-off lighthouse breaking through the storm clouds and waves in Genesis 4. And the world of Genesis 4, this fallen world, the world after sin's curse, this is the world that we live in today. The challenges of Genesis 4 are challenges that we face. The temptations that face Cain are still temptations that we experience. And yes, the hope that's available to Cain and to Abel and to Adam and Eve in Genesis 4 can be our hope too. So in this chapter, we see how the very fact of the curse of sin, uh, the curse of sin, means that we can't go through our lives without confronting the world's problem and our problem, that problem of sin. In a world where life itself is at stake, Abel's life. Cain's life, your life, and my life, the state of our world raises questions that we must answer. And in Genesis 4, we find three questions that we must answer because our world is fallen. Three questions that you and I have to have an answer to because the nature of the fallen world itself raises them and demands that we answer them. Three questions that we must answer because our world is fallen. Here's our first question. Where do you place your hope? Where do you place your hope? Cain's story, which is Genesis 4. Genesis 4 is Cain's story. And it begins at about the earliest place that any one story can begin, uh, at his birth. And we see that right from the start, there were really high expectations placed on Cain's shoulders. Uh, verse 1 starts off by saying that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Uh, this is telling us that Adam knew Eve in an intimate way, such that she became pregnant. Uh, let the hearer understand 
And upon becoming pregnant, she makes this declaration. She says, I have gotten, or, or produced, some translations might say, a man with the Lord's help. Now, every child is a, a wonderful and, and special miracle, a gift from the Lord. Certainly that's true. Uh, but Eve had what we might call high expectations for her son, Cain. Now, this is a woman who placed a little too much hope in her son. Uh, to get a picture of what's going on here, go back just a few verses to Genesis 3 and verse 15, which we already heard about, but this is God speaking to the serpent after he had tempted Adam and Eve. And God promised that an offspring, a, a, a son... Uh, from the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And Eve had no doubt heard and trusted that promise. So uh, when she had her first son, Cain, she seems to be thinking, could he be the one to crush the head of the serpent? Now there are often, uh, or or there can be at least, uh, misguided parents uh, who... Uh, are tempted to take too much credit for the accomplishment of uh, their children. Uh, And so it is with Eve. She's a little bit misguided in that way. She says uh, in verse 1, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And then she names her son Cain, which sounds like the Hebrew word for gotten. Now, when we use the word gotten or got, uh, it could mean received, right? Like, I've gotten a new coffee pot for Christmas. Or, it could mean taking an active part in achieving something. Like, look at this fish I got on Lake Michigan last weekend. And Eve seems to be saying the latter. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Uh, Once things go wrong with Cain, look how she speaks of her next son, Seth. Down in chapter 4, verse 25, she says, The Lord has appointed me another offspring. And she called his name Seth, which sounds like the Hebrew word for appointed. But she doesn't seem to see Cain as someone that the Lord appointed. She sees him as an accomplishment of her own doing. And maybe he's going to be the offspring to crush the head of the serpent. So from her vantage point, the Lord has helped her but she has gotten the hope of salvation from the fruit of her own womb. So in naming her son Cain, it's a bit like she's naming him, I've done it. I've gotten a man. The man. The one who will make everything right. And to really push that point home though, in verse 2, Eve bears another son and calls his name Abel. And in keeping with uh, these names meaning something or sounding like other words, Abel's name sounds like the Hebrew word for vapor, breath, or even vanity or meaninglessness. It's the word uh, used in Ecclesiastes when the preacher proclaims, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. How's that for favoritism in paradise? Here's my oldest son, my achievement, and his brother, meaningless. 
Uh, what's clear from all of this is that uh, Eve's hope to crush the head of the serpent is all in Cain. And more notably than that, her hope is in Cain, the one that she produced. This man that I've gotten, he's my hope. So, where will we look to for hope? Will we, like Eve, try to bring about ourselves what only God can do? It doesn't do justice to God to say that we've got hope for ourselves with his help. No, if, if there's any hope at all for this fallen world, friends, it has to be, it has to be, appointed, worked, accomplished, and revealed wholly and completely by God. We cannot say that we've got hope and God has helped us. We've got to say we have hope. Because God has given it to us. Do we trust him for salvation? Not just to help us save ourselves, for he doesn't do that. But do we trust him to save us completely by his power? Where is your hope? That's the first question that this text raises to us. Here's the second question. Which master will you serve? Which master will you serve? We're told that in the course of time, in verse 3, both Cain and Abel brought offerings before the Lord, both from their uh, respective uh, jobs, their professions. Cain brought something from the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought an offering from his flock of sheep and goats. And God regarded Abel's offering. It was pleasing to him, but he had no regard for Cain's offering. There was something dishonoring about Cain's offering. And the author of Hebrews actually tells us what it is. Uh, We see in Hebrews chapter 11 that it was by faith that Abel's offering was accepted and not Cain's. In other words, uh, Abel had trust in God and in his promises. Cain didn't. And since Abel had faith, His offering was accepted. And since Cain didn't have faith, his offering wasn't accepted. As Hebrews tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And Cain knew that his offering didn't please God and that Abel's did, and so he became angry. And his face fell. He became despondent. And then God comes and speaks to Cain while he's wallowing in his anger. And the Lord says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The same relationship that Abel has with God is available to Cain, too. Abel has faith in God and in his promises. 
And Cain has that same opportunity to trust God just like Abel. And yet with that opportunity, there's a threat. A threat to Cain. A threat whose power to deceive and destroy has been seen all too clearly by Cain and his family. This threat of sin. (coughs) It's crouching at the door like a predator ready to attack. And what sin wants more than anything is to harm those who live in it. And so it's imperative that Cain not allow himself to be conquered, but he must rather dominate this sin that lies in wait for him. He must conquer it before it conquers him. Now see this opportunity that's in front of Cain. He's not given the chance to crush the head of the serpent for all of humanity, but he's told by God that he has the opportunity to perform this much smaller task of conquering sin in his own life. Can this man, Eve's accomplishment, do even this small thing? No. No, he can't. Far from defeating him, or far from defeating sin, uh, he can't even prevent it from controlling his life. How can he crush the head of the serpent when he can't crush his life? Overcome with jealousy and anger, Cain murders his brother Abel. And the Lord's warning to Cain still stands for us today. Sin is crouching at the door, so to speak. Or as Peter writes, our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. And we read in the book of Hebrews that it was by faith that Abel offered a better offering than Cain's. And it's precisely Cain's lack of faith that not only prevented him from offering an acceptable offering, but also guaranteed that he would see no victory over sin. We might sometimes like to think that we're independent. That we're making our own decisions. That we know what's best for us. So we make our own choices that reflect our our knowledge. We know what's best, so we're the only ones who can make the best decisions for us. But the Bible tells us a different story. That the reality of living in a world created by a good God, but infected with the evil of sin, means that you will either be serving God or serving sin. And friends, you must not serve sin. Because its desire is contrary to you. It's against you. It wants to harm you. It wants to take your life. So, which master will you serve? The one lying in wait for your life? 
or the one who laid his own life down so that you can have yours. Only a desperately sinful heart could convince you that that's a tough decision. Which master will you serve? That's our second question that we must answer because we live in a sinful world. Here's the third question that we must answer because we live in a sinful world. Question three. Whose blood speaks for you? Whose blood speaks for you? At the end of our story, Cain plots murder against his brother Abel and kills him in a field. And we see some parallels between Adam's story and Cain's. God says to Adam in Genesis 3, where are you? And to Cain in Genesis 4, where is your brother? A God uh, declared Adam guilty and therefore cursed, and Cain receives a curse of his own. And yet, neither Adam nor Cain were killed, but both of them have to leave the place where they are and head toward the east. It's tragic, really. Cain, who started off looking like he could be the one to crush the head of the serpent, has done no better than Adam, his father. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, so to speak. But look at how Cain's guilt is identified. Look at what proclaims him guilty. The Lord says in verse 10, Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. The evidence of Cain's guilt is in the shed blood of his brother Abel. So that Abel's blood is crying out from the ground to God, Cain is guilty. Do we realize that if we live in sin, shed blood cries out against us too? Jesus says in Matthew 5 that even though you've heard it said, you shall not murder, anyone who hates his brother is liable to judgment. Or consider psalms which speak of wicked people using their words like piercing arrows. Like in Psalm 64, which says those who weigh their tongues like sword and who aim bitter words like arrows. Or else Luke 17, where Jesus says that the Pharisees and the scribes who have this lack of faith and who warp the Bible, God's word, uh, their warping of God's word, their misuse of it, has made them complicit in the murder of the prophets of old. The scriptures are clear, friends, that even if our hands haven't committed murder, our, our sins still shed blood in a way that makes us just as guilty as Cain. And our bitterness and anger, our malicious words and gossip, our legalism and twisting of God's words are just examples of how that is the case. And so on account of your sin and mine, 
there is blood that can cry out against us, they are guilty. And that blood would have the definitive final say if it weren't for another blood that could speak a better judgment. First John tells us that the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. In other words, because of Jesus' death on the cross, we have another blood that can speak for us. We can let the blood of our guilt speak for us so that it cries out to God, guilty, or we can confess our sins to the God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we can have confidence that the blood of Jesus is saying for us their sin is paid for. No longer guilty, but forgiven. Whose blood will speak for you? I've called this sermon uh, The Tragedy of Cain. Because it's a tragedy that Cain's life went the way that it did. He began as the reason for his parents' hope. But their misplaced expectations uh, and his own shortcomings... Through, through their misplaced expectations and, and his own shortcomings, uh, Cain's life went drastically downhill. And it would be a tragedy for us, likewise, to go this same route. Either by never considering the questions that this text raises for us, or by answering them incorrectly. These uh, three questions. And I, I don't mean that these three questions are like a test with right or wrong answers. What I mean is that there's a way that God invites us to answer these questions. Uh, these questions that his word raises. And if we don't want our lives to turn out as tragedies, we would be wise to listen to the answers that God gives us. So, in our last few minutes... Let's return to the three questions that this text raises and consider how God poses uh, an answer to them. What answer God gives to us and what it will look like when we answer these questions God's way. Question one, where do you place your hope? Where do you place your hope? And God's answer is Jesus Christ. I'm confident that if we wanted to, we could find about a million different ways to try and save ourselves and make the world a better place all on our own. But there is only one way that God offers to us, and that is Jesus Christ. He and he alone can fix the problem of sin. So what does it look like when we believe this? 
What does it look like when we believe that Jesus and Jesus alone can fix the world's problems and our problems? Uh, First, we will be optimistic enough to believe that everything that's wrong in the world can be put right. We'll believe that disease can be healed. People can be forgiven. Conflict can end in peace. And the sting of death can be taken away. So we'll pray. We'll work even uh, toward those ends. And we won't despair. But even with that optimism, we won't be optimistic enough to believe that this means that this is the way that the world will go. Where human hearts still rebel, there will still be sin. Where the ground is still cursed, there will still be sickness and toil. So we wait for Jesus to come again. And we don't trust the empty promises of people who claim that they're able to do what only Jesus can. Where do you place your hope? God's answer is Jesus. Question two. Which master will you serve? God's answer is Jesus. When we choose to serve Jesus instead of being ruled by sin, our lives will be increasingly defined by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those fruit will increase in our lives so that we look like people who are defined by that instead of the works of the flesh. Not only that, but we will read the Bible and obey what it says. We'll be engaged with the body of Christ, the church, growing in Christ and helping others grow. That's what it will look like when we serve Jesus instead of being ruled by sin. I I could go on and on, but I do want to acknowledge that many of us struggle to do those things and feel like we're doing them well. Growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I can think of probably five things from this morning uh, that didn't reflect that I was living that way. Probably you can, too. There's more to say, but at least take note of this. God says to Cain, sin's desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. You and I, like Cain, must rule over sin. But Cain didn't do it. So what's your plan? What's your plan for ruling over sin? I'll I'll tell you this. Only one person ever defeated sin and lived a life of victory over sin and temptation, and that was Jesus. And in Jesus, and only in Jesus, can we share in that same victory over sin. We can reflect his virtue, but only dimly. But if we even hope to do it dimly, it can only be in him and through him. But take this to heart, friends, that Jesus, the master that we serve, 
is Jesus the victor over sin? Victory over sin is not something that we have to accomplish, to accomplish before we can serve Jesus. Victory over sin is something that Jesus will give to us as we follow him. Don't think that you have to increase in the fruit of the Spirit before you follow Jesus. Understand that following Jesus and the Spirit that he gives you, that's what increases the fruit in your life. Friends, what master will you serve? Will you be ruled by sin? or be ruled by Christ? Uh, Question three. The first two questions, where's your hope? God's answer is Jesus. What master will you serve? God's answer is Jesus. Question three, whose blood speaks for you? God's answer, Jesus. Jesus shedding his own blood on the cross is the only way that we could be made right with God. Without it, the blood of our guilt would cry judgment against us for the rest of time. And when we take this truth in, three things should grow in us. We should have a growing awareness of our own sin because of the steep price that was paid for our sins. We'll take our sins more seriously. We'll have a growing desire to forgive those who have sinned against us since our sins have been forgiven so freely. And we'll have a growing confidence that we have peace with God because we trust that the blood of Jesus is able to do everything that God says it does. A growing awareness of our own sin, a growing desire to forgive those who have sinned against us, a growing confidence that we have peace with God. This is what it will look like as we take in the truth that Jesus' blood speaks for us. May we not be like Cain, falling into the tragedy of his life, but may we be people who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And if anyone here wants to boast, that's fine. Boast in Jesus. Boast in Him for the hope that's in Him. Boast in Him for the joy of serving Him. And boast in Him for His blood that declares us clean. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your good word. Lord, how it reveals to us the hope that we have in Jesus, the joy that we have in serving Him and the forgiveness and confidence that we have in his blood and in his blood alone, which declares us forgiven. Lord, may we take this all to heart and be people who, uh, looking at our own faces in the mirror, are people who respond uh, rightly to that, who uh, change our appearance, who trust you, Lord, increasingly, who love you, Uh, Lord, with growing fervor, and Lord, who live in good works, and who rejoice in the work that your Spirit has done in us. Lord, we love you, and we want to love you more. Press the truth from your word 
more deeply into our hearts this week so that we may love you and serve you more. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.